when you're working on things in your life, Travis, it's not, a, okay, this is fixed in a week or a month. What takes years to break us takes years to fix too. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Our last couple of conversations have looked hard at what it means to be fully human in a dehumanized world. We've heard the call to remind ourselves that we're not our own, but God's, that we've been bought with a price, and that we are only human, created with limits, and that's actually a good thing. Today, though, we're embarking on a conversation that fleshes out the reality of what it looks like to be human in our everyday real world. For some, this is going to be a very uncomfortable conversation because it deals with both the brokenness of our world and with the failures of the church to help someone navigate that brokenness. It deals with the story of my friend John, who is a larger-than-life, flamboyant man of God who shares both his own brokenness and what God has done for him. I will have to let you know, though, that this story isn't an easy one. I want to lay that out right up front because it's a story of molestation. It's a story of homosexuality, of the church's failure, but it's also a story of God's faithfulness. We won't go into the gory details, but we don't shy away from reality either. I wanted to share John's story for a couple of reasons. First up, We believe that being a Christian is something that we are to be and do in all of life. And that means living in a world that's fallen and broken. It means being a Christian will directly engage our brokenness. And as Alan Noble and Kelly Capick have shown us, our own uniqueness as people, with our experiences, our unique personalities, our families, all of it. It all matters and is part of living out Christ's mission. John's story is important. It's important for all of us because John points us to the everyday reality of realizing that we do belong to God and that we need to let him shape us into who we are supposed to be. We are able to have conversations like this one because of listeners and supporters like you. This November and December, we're in a big push to finish the year well. We need you to do three things for us. Subscribe, share, and support. We need you to invest in us so that we can continue investing in you. We need to raise an additional $50,000 in these two months so that we can continue watering your faith. To those who are already supporting us, thank you. Muchos gracias. It means more than you know. Your one-time gift of $50 or more will enter you to receive one of 50 books that we have available from authors who have been on the show and their books we love. Books like Beautiful Community by Erwin Entz, which is now in its seventh printing, by the way. Restless Devices by Felicia Wusong, or You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. Or books like The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken, and the just-released book by Jim Wilder, Escaping Enemy Mode. I know a lot of people are going to really enjoy that. It, It gets even better than that. Our friends at Tyndale House Publishers have provided copies of the NLT Illustrated Study Bible. It's a really good study Bible. I have spent a year going through it, and your one-time gift of $50 or more gets you a copy. You've also heard us talk about our Missio Holistic Approach to Faith. It's simply helping you fulfill the mission of God where you are, with all of who you are. It's a God-centered, mission-framed approach to living out your faith in the modern world. That's it. And you're going to be hearing a lot about that in the days, weeks, and months to come. And when you sign up to support us monthly, you will be eligible to participate in an online study with me 
on the Missio Holistic approach and helping find God's mission for your life. Thank you so much for your generosity. Go to apolloswater.org and click the support us button. And that's how you can give. But let's get to our conversation with John Hannigan. Happy listening. John Hannigan, welcome to Apollos Watered. Oh, it's so good to be here. Are you ready for the Fast Five? I'm ready. All right, here we go. I know that you're an avid coffee drinker. So the best coffee is? One that's made for me. Okay. So it's about laziness. I mean, you said it, not me. So it's about convenience and efficiency. If I could be doing something else while you're making my coffee, I'm being efficient with my time. (laughs) (laughs) What what is your favorite coffee? So I love Nespresso. My Nespresso currently is above the refrigerator because when I tried to put the Nespresso out at the new house, my wife, Melissa, she made it very clear that we are not a two-coffee-maker family. And that she prefers Keurig and that Nespresso is expensive and ridiculous. And so I decided not to fight that battle (laughs) after a long text interchange with multiple people involved where I was trying to prove that I actually drink the coffee. I love a good caramel macchiato, like an iced Mm. caramel macchiato, or I like cold brew because it's like full throttle, you know, Uh, so... Okay, that's pretty cool. Go big. I, 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 on my counter right now, I have some mushroom latte stuff. I don't know. I'm going to try it. Mushroom latte. Yeah, bro. I just picked your name on the coffee cup. What is talk of luck? The guy just messed up and gave your cup to me. All right, here's your second question. I also know you enjoy fashion. So the best fashion designer is. I don't want to sound bougie. Jeez. <laughs> what um, is bougie? What bougie? is bougie? Like as in like, you know, like affluent and. Oh, like, okay. You know, le riche. I don't know. Like, wow. You're just dropping the terms today. Where you get these words? These are not in my lexicon. I don't know. Well, you know, you live in, you live in Chicago. Like I would think you'd know fashion. <laughs> I, I mean, I see you dress every week, so I know that you don't. Um, so <laughs> oh, that, that, that's, um, that's thanks, John. Thanks. You're welcome. Um, so, okay. Well, are we talking women's designer, male, men's designer? Let's do men's. Let's do men's. Today. Okay. So men's, you know, I love Burberry. It's classic, you know, for a high end aesthetic. I think. You know, my favorite thing, actually, like my uniform, essentially, in life for a couple of years was Lacoste, V-necks and polos, you know, the alligator. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's they I love them for shirts. I love seven jeans. Seven is a brand, not a number. Um, <laughs> just in case people didn't know that. Seven <laughs> for all mankind. Um, they have Lycra in them. And as as you know, I'm six, five and. 300 and something pounds. Um, <laughs> You're a big guy. You're I'm a big, a big guy. And so I like a little bit of stretch in my fabric. You know, it's like, so that's, you know, but if it was women's, it would be Chanel all day long. Okay. Classic. All right. Well, here's the, the third question then. What is the one daily item you use that you can't do without? I mean, I could be all like, oh, my phone, because hello, we're all addicted. Toilet paper? I don't know. No, come on. Not that. that. (laughs) Um, No, I think, you know, honestly, I think at this point, I would say my phone because, you know, like we use it for everything, right? I email, text, directions, information. Right. Googling random people and random facts. Oh, I could be very like Christianese and be like, oh, my Bible. I'm, sometimes, yeah, sometimes we do go a little far <laughs> in that, in our explanations and what we oh, I use my them. Bible because it's the holy word of God. Well, and we I must d- have it. 
we do need the word of God, but I know what you But mean. I have it's, an app on my phone. That's true. But, you know, I like the pages. I like to feel the pages. I like to, for yeah. me, it's, I'm, I'm an old guy that way. Like I can do stuff on my phone. I get it and I use it, but I just like to have the paper. Feel the paper. I also, I like the like super fancy, you know, like I have a goatskin Bible, right? And I don't know why goatskin is better than regular leather, but it is because Crossway told me it was when they sold it to me. And so I love it, right? Like it's super goaty. I don't know. It's, a, it's the goat. It's the to goat. our Crossway friends. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't hold this in against him as we're talking through this right now. All right, here we go. The fourth, the fourth question is this. Because we talk about culture on here quite a bit, and I know you've interacted with some different cultures, what is your strangest or funniest cross-cultural experience? So probably, you know, we do missions in Puerto Rico. And it wasn't funny because it happened to me. It was funny because it happened to someone else. So I guess that I should preface it with that. <laughs> I was laughing at someone else's is pain, I guess. You know, I ascribe to the blessed are the flexible for they won't be bent out of shape, right? Like, okay. okay. And, you know, you go to Puerto Rico and they say, like, we're starting something at noon. That definitely means they're going to think about leaving their house at noon. Mm-hmm. to get to where we're going, right? And so it's a two o'clock start. And so we've got this mom friend who was with us on this trip. And she's very like, if you say it starts at noon, you're there at 1135, mm-hmm. you know? And um, it was, you know, day two of the mission trip. And and I'm watching her and she's getting more and more like visibly kind of upset at her type A-ness and how they are not type A. And I walk over and I'm like, you know, like, it's okay. Like, you can chill out a little bit. Like, it's fine. Like, this is just how they are. Like, you know, this is how I am. I'm Cuban. So, like, I get it. You know, like, I'm Hispanic. I live on island time or whatever. And so, she just, it was just like a really, it was funny to watch all weekend as she was just like, you know, everything was, oh, well, this, if we would have started five minutes ago and it was actually, I, I say funny. It actually, now I'm like thinking about it. I'm like, wow, it was kind of sad because I think she also missed a lot because she was so set on, but we have to be doing this and we're done. We're doing this 20 minutes late that she didn't see the ministry that was happening or the Lord's movement in it. And then also I think I uh, strange, I, um, you never know what you're going to eat when you're in other cultures. Mm-hmm. And actually this one happened in Chicago. I was with Melissa and we were at a restaurant in Chicago, really nice restaurant. And they found out that she was born in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. She's not Filipina. She's, you know, she's a white girl, but she was born in the Philippines on the air force base there. And so they brought out this specialty dish that has intestine in it, like mm. pig intestine. Was it lechon? I, like a roast it was pig? Seasig. Oh, I don't know. Okay. Super good. But I didn't okay. know what was in it until after I ate it. And I know <laughs> what was in it. But now I like order at places and people are like, oh, you like that? And I'm like, what? It's really good. And if you don't think about the fact that you're eating something that you shouldn't be eating in normal life, then you're fine. That's good. So it was really good. It was funny. I don't know. It was weird. There was a lot, it, you know. It's interesting. I enjoy other cultures. And so for me, it's like, I kind of just roll with it. And so there's not a lot of weird. It's just kind of like, huh, okay. And then you just kind of move forward, right? You don't think <laughs> about it. You just kind of like, I'm going to embrace this. And that's why I found myself in a cult. No. <laughs> question five. I'm going to have our editors going to have a lot of fun with this. Um, question five is this. Let's go back to fashion for a moment. If my life were to be a fashion trend, your life, if your life were to be a fashion trend, it would be what? I want to say it'd be a mullet because I'm like business in the front and party in the back, but I'm not. Like I'm mostly party and then a little bit of business in the back. So that's not right. Um, The little black dress because it's completely versatile. Oh. Is totally versatile. 
That's a good one. It goes for anything. It's always in style. Yeah. It doesn't matter like what goes always on. In style, like you know, because of the Lord. That's awesome, John. Well, let's get to that. Because you, if anyone has just now tuning in to the show, John's a big personality and John's got an amazing story. And I, I, I've met John and we've had coffee together and he shared his story. And I wanted more people to hear your story because I find it is one of tremendous encouragement for many people, especially with a lot of the things and stories we hear today in our culture. Uh, about young people and where our culture is headed, but God has called you to a very called you out of something and to something. But I don't want to steal your thunder. I want to hear the John Hannigan story. John, describe a, a brief bit of your biography, where you come from, where you grew up, and uh, and then we'll we'll move on from that because I think that sets the stage for a lot of different things. Okay, so it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> okay, not um, that far back. Oh, okay. I was like, Jesus called the light forward. (laughs) So no, so I was, my parents, they met and got married kind of young. And then my dad was military. He was army. Uh, So I was born in Fort Ord, California. Moved to Germany, um, kind of moved around a lot. Ended up actually, my parents went to college after my sister and I were born and they went to a small liberal arts college in Missouri, um, Hannibal Grange. So I was raised on campus, kind of a cool experience. Sometimes I say that I was like the only boy allowed in the girls dorms, mm. you know, like I could go wander and like talk to all the girls and they could not also trick or treating at a college when you're like four and really adorable, mm-hmm. gets you a lot of candy. So obviously I learned to use my devilish good looks very early on. But actually, so when I was six, my parents were doing kind of like a year of transition, a summer of transition. And so I went to my grandparents' house to spend the summer with them in Phoenix, Arizona. And while I was there at my grandparents' house, I was molested by my uncle, uh, Mm -hmm. who was about 18, 19 at the time. And, you know, I tell people like, you know, I didn't sin. He sinned. And that sin splattered and stained me Mm -hmm. and that's what sin does so often right we sin and we splatter and stain the people around us that summer the pastor was preaching and he preached on being rescued you know needing a savior you know just saving us which i think is sometimes overused when you are six and you're sitting in a, a pew and your uncle's molesting you and you know that's wrong and someone says, oh, you can be rescued, you can be saved. My thought was that Jesus would save me from this, mm. right? God was going to save me. And so I walked the aisle and I became a Christian. And then unfortunately, the molestation continued for the, the rest of the summer and skewed my view of what that meant and what that looked like. At a very early age, I realized that God wasn't going to rescue me. Mm. He didn't rescue me. I also didn't understand what sin meant, right? At the end of the day. So I knew that sin was happening and I knew that it was wrong, but I didn't know how to fix it. Praise the Lord. My uncle actually went to my parents a year later and said, Hey, I want you to know that this is what's up. This is what's been going on. And I did this for the summer. And so my parents um, went to the church and said, how do we deal with this? And um, they said, you know, he needs to get into counseling and all that. And so I was, I went to counseling for several years um, unfortunately, the way we look at mental health in America, it's, you know, insurance is, okay, you get eight visits, mm. you know, and especially back then you have to think this is like the late, late eighties, early nineties. And so it's like, Hey, you get eight visits, you get 16 visits. And then, Oh, now you can go find a new counselor and get another eight visits pre-approved through them. And so I learned how to work the system. I, uh, I would go in and, uh, talk to the therapist and, and it was like, oh, I, now I can say all the right things on visit three and four, and I don't actually have to dig into anything. So I learned to manipulate. I learned to put on masks. In that, I learned that it was safer to hide behind a mask than show people the real you. So fast forward you know, years, I'm 15, and finally I'm going, this is not right. This is not what God wants for my life. Like I knew it was wrong. I knew it felt good in the flesh, but I knew it was wrong. And so... 
I went to a church and I asked for help. I said, hey, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to deal with this. And they obviously didn't know how to deal with it either. And so, unfortunately, I was rejected from that church. And at that point, I gave God an ultimatum, uh, which is the smartest thing you can ever do, is to like give God, the God of the universe, an ultimatum. <laughs> so I, um, I did. I gave God an ultimatum. And I said, God, you have till I'm 18 to help me. Find someone to help me. And um, if not, then I know that you accept that this is who I am, that you created me this way. I went to several more churches and didn't get the help that I needed. And so when I turned 18, I left for college and spent a semester at school um, at a liberal arts, a small Christian liberal arts school. And then I moved to Boston, Massachusetts. um, And I came out and I lived that life. And I said, okay, God, you're going to embrace me for who I am. And so I'm going to live. So I did. And I was there. I lived in Malden with a couple of people and uh, then ultimately moved into the city, um, into the South end of Boston, which is kind of the gay district. So I was like, Oh, the Lord has delivered me to the gays. That was not what he did. And so I, I lived in the greater Boston Baptist association house, they had a house on Shama Avenue. Um, and I live with four women and myself. How did you get to live in the greater Boston Baptist association home while pursuing a lifestyle completely against what they would stand for. Well, so here's the thing. They didn't, I was still, I was out, but hidden. Right. So I was out to the world, but not to the faith community. You know, so again, my dad was military, ended up being, you know, military chaplain. My mom works or worked for a state newspaper and had worked, written for Baptist press for almost 40 years. So they kind of know everyone. Right. And so they, when I called my mom and said, Hey, the house I'm living in is kind of terrible and it's really far away. She said, Let me call some people I know. So she called this guy at the GBBA and he said, Oh, we have a house and it happens to have a room, rents $460 a month. In 2002 in Boston, Massachusetts, in the South End where I could walk everywhere, 460 was like, Yeah. Now I had the smallest room with the largest closet, which I think is apropos. Um, given my life. And so, um, so I lived there and, and I would go out and do whatever I wanted to do and come home. And there sometimes there'd be a house church happening in my living room. And two of the girls were missionaries. They ran Baptist collegiate ministries on campuses. And the other two, one of them worked at a church next door and the other one was kind of a missionary, but she also like worked somewhere. I don't know. It was a lot. There was a lot happening and I wasn't really interested in connecting with those people, obviously. But I'd started to get close to one of them. And so one night I decided to come out to her and um, her name was Corinne. I can't for the life of me remember her last name. And if you are Corinne and you are listening, mm-hmm. then like email me because I want to talk to you. And I mean, I've tried. I've like looked her up. But she was a campus minister at either Boston College or Boston University. Super cool girl. At the time, she was in her early 30s. I sat on her bed and I told her what was going on. And she said, John, I don't care what you do. Just tell me how you're glorifying God. In it. And that statement was pivotal for me because she was the first person to give me permission. I don't care what you do. But at the same time, she gave me permission with a caveat. Tell me how you're glorifying God in it. And so though I had permission to do whatever I wanted to do, I now had to focus through the lens of glorifying God. So for the first two weeks, I totally embraced the first half of the statement. And I was like, she doesn't care. I could totally be me. Sweet, sweet. And I went out and I did my thing. And then, and then I realized it hit me. And I was like, wait, this isn't glorifying to God. So, you know, one night I was leaving a club and I heard what I believe was the audible voice of God, which people will refute and tell me I'm crazy. Well, go back for a second because you're talking about the lifestyle that you're in, but you, you, there's one part that you, you said you had a large closet because you were performing. Isn't that correct? You were performing at this time. Yeah. So I, um, I had done drag. It was a thing, you know, but even like outside of the lifestyle of drag, you know, I was, I was embracing an openly in a homosexual lifestyle. 
you know, I think people, some people are like about, it's like, oh, like, wow, you were like super gay because you were a drag queen, right? Or like, whatever. like I have a friend there's who- like level. Yeah, like there's levels. Levels of gay. Well, like I have a friend, his story is that he was a coke addicted gay stripper. And we always say that he wins at Sin Roulette because <laughs> I'm like, I was a drag queen. And he's like, I was a coke addicted gay stripper. And it's like, but that's how we in the church, that's how we view sin so often, right? And it's like, right. like there's the, the people- like we, you know, I was in a men's group a couple of years ago and one of the guys was like, well, I don't really have a cool testimony. Mm. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, because, you know, I just kind of like, I don't know, I did my thing and I like went to Liberty and yada, yada. And like, you know, super normal, met my wife, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that's a great testimony. Like, I would rather have that testimony than the testimony that I have, right? Like, like, oh, I met the Lord and I followed him well. Like, that's an amazing story. And I think so often in the church, we want to find the biggest, craziest, like, you know, like I had 92 abortions and then I met the Lord. Like, no, how about I followed the Lord? Like I met the Lord and I followed him well. Like I said, so yes, I'm in the closet, have a big closet, doing drag, living that life. And, but I, so I'm standing outside of a club ready to go home and um i heard what i believe was the audible voice of god saying go home Mm. and i was waiting for someone to go home with and and i was like i'm going home like i thought it was like a bouncer or something and i was like kind of looked around i'm like okay and then i heard it again go home and so i walked home like 26 blocks like you lived in boston yeah like i was in cambridge and i walked all the way down mass ave to shaman and what time of year is this this is like January at like 2 a.m. So basically freezing cold, open back shoe, which is important to note. A mule is an open back shoe. Like basically my heel is, yeah, like, I mean, I have like the insole, but that's kind of it. There's not really a lot of buildup, you know. So, but I mean, they were cute. They were black. I remember them. I got a hole in the side by my pinky toe. Um, cause I wore them so much. Um, <laughs> it's, like, it's weird the things you remember, right? You know, I get home and I hear for the third time, um, go home. I was like, okay, I'm home. And I'm like, no, go home. And I'm like, dude, I'm home. And I realize that I'm feeling this call to go home, like literally home to my family. And which so is, where are they living at this time? Which, which is Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. And so my, I call my dad and um, I'm like, dad, I want to come home. And he's like, I'll get you a plane tomorrow. Okay. Not like a plane. Like that just sounded like he was going to like charter me a private plane. Like he meant like, I'm going to get you a ticket on like whatever low budget cheap airline there is. Right. 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 And I said, no, I don't want a plane. I want to train. And I don't want it tomorrow. I want two weeks. Why? Because... Cause like I had to get my life right, bro. Like I had to figure some things out. And so like, I was just like, I knew I couldn't just go straight home and then be like home. And then what am I dealing with? Like, I'm trying to figure out like, am I going to church? Am I not going to church? Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? Like, am I a cultural Christian? Like, you know, like, what am I? Like, I don't know what I am. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take two weeks. And over the next two weeks, I kind of purged my life. And I would go sit, you know, I wanted actually part of it was also I wanted to give notice because I was working. And so I, I would, but I would go sit um, at the Cockley Church, beautiful church. You know, sit in the back pew and just, just kind of, you see the majesty of God, right? Like you kind of mm-hmm. see it. So I'm sitting and, um, and I'm like, okay, I got to figure this out. I got to be a man of God. Like, what is a man of God? It wasn't even me, right? Like glorify God in it. Glorify God. I don't care what you do. Just tell me how you're glorifying God. Well, glorifying God is being a man of God. Being a man of God is what? I don't know. I don't know what a man of God is. Clearly the church isn't going to help me with that, right? Mm. Because I've tried. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm going to read a biography. Because if you're going to be a man of God, like find a good man of God to emulate. Mm. And Charles Spurgeon seems like a pretty decent guy. Mm. So let me read about Charles Spurgeon. 
And so I literally bought a biography and I don't even remember which one. Like, I can't find it. I'm sad. Like, I should have. Like, I should have like, kept it. But like, this is it in a shrine. And I, to be fair, I read like 50 pages. But um, <laughs> to be, I skim read it. So that's, that, that counts. <laughs> but so I sit down and I'm like, okay. I get on the train and I'm like, I'm going to read this. And I stopped in New York, saw a friend. Um, gave her a box and then kept going. And what was the box? Um, some stuff to hold on to in case this wasn't going to work. Oh, okay. Because there are some things in life that are expensive. And so you should not just get rid of them willy nilly. Got it. So I got home and then I started studying scripture. How old are you at this time? So at this point, I'm like 20 and I'm sitting in, um, Starbucks on Hodges and in, in, here in Jacksonville. And I don't know if you know this about me, Travis, but I become the mayor of everywhere I am. You take over Starbucks when you walk in. <laughs> it's like yeah. you're the manager. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. So I think in life, in like, please pause story here. In life, we are all thermostats or thermometers, right? And thermometers go into a yes, room. I tell that to my kids. Right. All the time. So thermometers go into the room, they read the temperature and they, they adjust to it. And then thermostats go in and read the temperature and go, mm, no, this is terrible. And they change it to what they want it to be. I am a thermostat. I adjust the temperature. And so I'm known. And so I was like, the, I was like the mayor of that Starbucks and that whole shopping mall actually. And, um, but I would go in and I would read and it was a couple months after I started doing that. And a prominent pastor would actually go into that same Starbucks. And I won't say his name because I think he's been disgraced now. I don't know. Like everyone has in Southern Baptist life mm-hmm. this month. He would come in and I would ask him questions. And he knew me because of my parents. And so he would answer questions. But so I'm, I'm digging in and I'm going, okay, what does it mean to be a man of God? And what does it mean to struggle with this? Right? Like I'm struggling with this flesh desire. And so I found an organization. And so I ended up. They had a conference. And so this is how I came out to my parents, Travis. I walked into my mom's office with a manila folder and the information on this conference. And I said, hey, I need to go to this conference. And I set it on her desk and I walked out of the room. And, uh, and she walked into my room crying. And I was like, okay, that's enough. Let's put those tears away, Joni. Um, and I said, you know, she said, of course, we'll, say, we'll send you... We'll figure it out. And so I went to this conference of a now defunct organization that helped people with sexuality. And I met these amazing people who were on the same path as me, trying to figure out how to do faith and walk out of an LGBT life. And they were great. And there was one woman who was there who spoke, and she never once talked about sexuality. She didn't say gay or ex-gay because that was the big thing at the time, ex-gay. You're ex-gay. Yay. Um, And there were lots of like funny, like homo-nomo. People who had never struggled, they're never queer. Oh, you're a never queer, Travis. And it was all fun and games, right? Mm -hmm. Which was kind of weird to me. But, But it was also fun because I'm a fun guy. And so, but I met this woman um, and she spoke and she said, Identity controls behavior. Don't identify as gay or ex-gay. Identify as a man or a woman of God. Mm. So I've already been kind of thinking about man of God, and then that happens. And then, fast forward a couple months, I get home from that conference, and I'm still kind of like trying to figure things out, pursuing the Lord. And I'm visiting churches with a friend who worked with my mom, and she... We walk into this church and I was in my head still trying to figure out like, you know, this organization that I went to, they were, they had a lot of rules. You have to be out for two years before you can talk about it. Your goal kind of like they said it, but they didn't say it, but it was like the goal was to like get married. You know, that was like the proof, which is terribly detrimental. And if you are struggling with sexuality and believe in the process of sanctification, understand that that sanctification may not include heterosexuality. It may just include this being your cross to bear. 
Um, and being single and being single, which is, you can be single and fulfilled. Yeah, and so, totally. Um, I mean, the woman on the stage who said identity controls behavior, Kathy Cook is the founder of the ministry that I now run. She is single has always been, she's a national parenting expert. She's single, never got, never got married, never had kids, super content. So I go to this church and I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life. And, and, Travis, you know me, and I think anyone listening at this point has realized that I have a big personality and I'm funny, and, um, or I think I'm funny at least, and um, very outgoing, very loud, very gregarious. And, um, and I'm trying to figure out how my personality fits in because, quite frankly, at this point, you know, Will and Grace is big. Mm. Jack is like, just Jack, right? And so he's like the big flamboyant, like what, what we now consider like the typical homosexual man, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's that personality. And so... I'm trying to figure out like, how do I keep who I am, but not, and like all this stuff. And, um, I sit down in Sunday school and I, in, in walks this woman and like Travis, when I tell you, like looking like a million bucks, <laughs> nine West boots, nine West jacket, other jacket. <laughs> the jacket's still in the closet in the master bedroom at my house. Um, <laughs> I stole it. No, I didn't steal it. I'm joking. I married her. No, um, <laughs> now I killed the story. So there I, is um, editing. There is editing. We correct. can't edit. So I, uh, but no, sir, I walked, she walks in the room, gorgeous. And I was just like, oh, hello. My goodness. And she sits down in front of me. She's like our table leader. And I'm all like, why? Right. And like all of my personality goes away. And I'm all like, well, you know, I think when Paul was writing this, what he (laughs) meant was that the Lord had given him great wisdom. And when David was hiding in the cave in Psalms 57, (laughs) he cried out to the Lord. And like, right. And I'm all like, she's just like, "Hmm, this guy's interesting. You could totally do a juxtaposition of this story with from me and then from Melissa because it's like totally funny. Because she's like, "Well, that's not how I remember it," and I'm like, "Well, I do. Um, isn't that life with your spouse, yeah, right?" Of course, so, yeah. So I see her and I'm like, "Whoa!" And she invites us to sit with her, and so we're sitting there, and I'm going like, "This girl's hot, like super hot." I didn't want to sit with her, by the way, because I was like, "She's super hot," and that freaks me out. Mm. Then she invites us to lunch. Now, who are you with? I'm like, I get, I'm, so I'm with this friend who's a girl who she assumed I was dating. Oh. Which I was like, first of all, thank you for thinking I'm heterosexual. <laughs> second of all, right? And I'm like, second of all, like, no, I'm not dating this girl. Like, this is just a friend of mine. And so, but she thought we were dating. And so she invites us to lunch. And I was like, look, I told my friend, I was like, look, we can't go to lunch with them. Like, she's hot. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. And I think it was the first time, as I look back and reflect, it was the first time that I allowed myself to be physically attracted to a woman and like really kind of go, where would that lead? Right. And that was a lot for me at that point. And a couple months later, I met her again. um, And I was in a beautiful suede fringed jacket. It was like patchwork suede, <laughs> all the same color because it was a monotone look, um, like totally monochromatic, but it was gorgeous jacket. I had my European satchel, Banana Republic, green, army green, man, man satchel. bag, Merce. Man satchel. <laughs> my man satchel, sir. And um, it's, hey, it, it carried all the things I needed. And, um, and then... I um, so I met her again, and oh, I had a scarf. I had a scarf oh on <laughs> in like October in Florida. In Florida. So you're wearing leather and suede. I'm in Florida, suede in Florida, and a scarf. Florida in October. It was mm. fabulous. I looked amazing. <laughs> and I walk in and I own the room, and she goes, "He must have a." T- <laughs> <laughs> and I was like. Oh, hey, <laughs> and then I totally didn't talk to her because I was like, again, I was like, oh my God, there's that girl. And then on the outside, I was like, oh, crap. 
And so I'm like, oh, can I say that? We can edit that out. Um, I was like, oh, man. So I ended up actually, so I met her. So we ended up dating, um, which is a whole other story. But I was still fighting this battle, Travis, of, you know, I had embraced the ex-gay identity. So I'd gone from being gay to being ex-gay. And I was trying to be a man of God to be ex-gay first. Mm. And uh, ultimately, I think if you, don't, if you don't put God first, if you don't say, okay, first I'm a man of God, then you're going to have problems at some point because identity controls behavior. Mm. If I'm ex-gay, everything about me is thinking about being ex-gay, formerly gay. So I have to be gay to the opposite, mm. right? Being a man of God means you embrace who God created you to be. God created us good. You know, and so God created some of the crazy parts of me. Some of the fun parts of me, right? I mean, he created all of it, but he created me to be this unique creature that I am. And I have to embrace that as a man. And so that means my high voice is okay. And that means that my penchant for fashion is okay. And and at the same time, it means that like I can do all these other things. And so I was figuring that out. And so I start dating Melissa and I, Melissa says to me, I told her, I said, Hey, so I'm going to go to Exodus, this conference for another time. And um, she goes, why go to a men's conference? Go to, learn how to be a man. Like, why are you going to some conference where it's a bunch of people struggling with the same stuff? Like, that's not, that you know that's trying to be ex-gay right that's trying to be that's trying to live that like live as a man of god stop making your focus your sexuality and i was like oh this is different okay and so here for the third time i'm hearing kind of be a man of god so i'm like okay i can do that well here's the problem i was still struggling with a porn addiction Mm. melissa knew nothing about it so we get married in day 10 of our marriage she opens up the computer and finds mm. porn. And not just porn, but mm. gay porn. Like, let's be clear. Let's call a spade a spade here. It's, you know, it was, you can't, she can't even compete with that. You know, most women think they find porn on their husband's computer and they go, okay, I'm going to buy a new negligee. Mm. Right. She can't do mm. that. She's like, I don't have parts that like need to be a part of this picture. And so it rocked our marriage. I mean, 10 days in. And she didn't know about it because I hadn't told her that I was still struggling with porn because I kind of was of the impression that everyone was. And so it just is what it is. And, you know, in the church, Travis, we don't talk about real Mm -hmm. things so Mm -hmm. often. You know, we talk about like, oh, what'd you have for supper this Mm -hmm. week? And like, oh, that's so nice. Like, oh, I'm praying for you because you got that big final next week. Like, you know, not like, hey, I'm a former Coke addict and my dealer keeps showing up on the corner, right? And, and some of that is people are like, well, that doesn't happen in our church. Well, let me tell you it does, okay? I went to seminary. My neighbor at seminary got arrested for domestic violence. You don't think it's there, but it is. So I, you know, here I am. I'm trying to figure out, you know, who I am, what I'm doing. I'm now newly married. And Melissa and I are sitting there looking at each other. And, you know, I'm like, well, this is over. That was a fun 10 days. And, you know, we, we did what any good, you know, church going Baptist people do. And we swept it under the rug and we just pretended like it didn't exist. And, Three weeks later, we went to a wedding and it was the first time that we had slept in the same bed. And we conceived our first child, Joey, that Mm. night. Joey saved our marriage Mm. because I had made a decision that I was going to get through the holidays and I was going to leave her alone. We could annul the marriage. We could walk away. This was a big mistake. Clearly, I wasn't ready for this. She wasn't ready. I'm broken. No woman's going to want me, which is kind of a mantra I had learned. What woman wants me? So I was ready to walk away. And uh, she was ready to walk away. And 
we found out we were pregnant and I was like, well, I can't have a bastard child. Um, cause that would be terrible. Like I can't like be, you know, like to have a father, like to have a kid and then be like, Oh, I'm not going to be a father to that kid. Like that's terrible. And I want a kid like growing up in a broken home that happens way too much. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to figure this out. Like I guess I'm to work on it. And so I did. And let me tell you, when you're working on things in your life, Travis, it's not a, okay, this is fixed in a week or a month. What takes years to break us takes years to fix too. And so I think too often people go, oh, it's been three weeks. Mm-hmm. No, it took years for me to heal from pornography. It took years to heal our marriage. It took me falling two more times to really get serious enough to go, okay, I got to fix this. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, but we did, we did the hard work and, you know, we, Melissa and I, we went to seminary. I ended up actually dropping out of seminary so that Melissa could finish. So, because we were having our second baby, then, you know, and we've, and we've lived a life and, but the identity of being a man of God has always been there. So, you know, even when I, you know, we, we, we finished seminary, we moved back home for a, a little bit. Then we moved to Houston and, um, and business took off for me. I was in business and business took off and we were multimillionaires mm. and my identity went from being a man of God to being an eccentric millionaire. Mm. And it was a super fun identity. Like I got to wear fancy clothes and like, I could be a little bit crazy and a little bit off. And like, people thought it was great. And they're like, you have money. And like, you know, I was flashy and, you know, like there's, I mean, you're seeing my office, but the people on the screen aren't, but like, there's a big feather mm-hmm. sculpture behind me. It was like three grand mm-hmm. for this stupid feather. Um, I mean, it's beautiful and I love it. And like existentially, I could tell you it means some like crazy thing, but really at the end of the day, it's like a chunk of metal. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, but uh, to the eccentric millionaire, I totally needed it. And Melissa bought it for me as a gift. And so, but my life went from being man of God back to being something other than that first, my qualifier, my identifier, your identifier makes you identifiable. Mm. My identifier became eccentric millionaire. Therefore I became identifiable as an eccentric millionaire. When your identifier is man of God, you should be identifiable as a man of God. And you do because identity controls behavior. So when you see yourself as a man of God, you will act as a man of God acts. Right. And so Uh, Melissa actually started praying, Lord, do whatever it takes to get his heart, even if it means a child. Mm. And ultimately, um, God took something that was more important to me than my kids. And that's a sad statement. Um, But he took my money and my business partner stole a lot of money Mm. from us. Everything, basically. And um, and it was terrible, but it was great. It's the best thing that ever happened to us, honestly. It saved my marriage Mm. again. Because again, my identifier, how I identified myself had changed. And so I had to get back to being a man of God. And I think for me, and I think for the church, and I think for you, Travis, and I think for everyone, when our identity is man or woman of God, when it's child of the king, then it changes the way we look at life. It changes the way we speak. You know, I, was, I, had, I had coffee with you last week. I'll say this humbly. I coffee with you last week and I was talking about something that had happened in the past and I used an expletive and you immediately were like, Whoa, Whoa. And I was like, Oh, and I wasn't even talking in the present. Right. Like, I don't know if you remember this, like I wasn't talking in the present, but I realized post that conversation that even in talking in the past, even talking about the past, there's a way that I can season my talk and season what I'm saying to make sure that it reflects being a man of God. Because if that's what I want to reflect, and if that's, again, what makes me identifiable, I want, what I, I want everything about me that's identifiable to be a man of God, right? Then I, can't, I have to be careful about how I even position things, even if I'm talking about the past. You know, I, I started giving my, my testimony and, and telling my story, and so often people were, uh, would come up to me and they'd be like, oh, I think you're glorifying the sin. Now, since I've also learned that some people are just super uncomfortable with talking about LGBT stuff. And so, 
if you talk about it for more than 30 seconds, they're like, you're glorifying the sin. And I'm like, no, we're talking about redemption. But I was wrestling with this sin issue in my life and this flesh issue in my life and how to deal with it. And I wanted to be dependent on the church actually to fix me when I needed to be dependent on Christ to fix me. And I needed to just be able to say no. You know, what is the, what is the cure for, you know, being a hoe, so to speak? Um, that's terrible. But like, what is the cure for that? Well, stop having sex. Like, just stop. And so I think so often I'm like, people are like, oh, I'm going to go to the church to get help. And I'm like, right. Or just literally stop putting cocaine up your nose. I mean, I know it's an addiction. It's a lot harder than that. But like, listen, like at some point you just have to stop. And so for me, you know, the cure for homosexuality was not heterosexuality. Melissa isn't the stamp of approval on my life that says, oh, look, I made it. Right. It was holiness and drawing closer to Christ. And the cure for anything that ails us is holiness. It's growing closer to Christ and letting him sanctify you and understanding, you know, there was a, there was a campus minister was walking with me through this journey. And actually he was, he was part of Melissa's in my wedding. I remember he walked up to me on campus one day and I'm sitting there talking to a group of people smoking a cigarette. And, um, and I was still smoking at the time. And, and, you know, we're, like we're chit chatting and I see him coming and I kind of like throw the cigarette to the side and, <laughs> and then like, you know, walk kind of off of the cloud a little bit. And I'm like, what's up, dude. And he's like, John, how are you? And so we're talking and talking about whatever it is that we need to talk about. And then he walks about six or eight feet away and he turns around and he goes, listen, John, I'm not worried about the cigarette. We'll deal with it eventually. There was such grace in that moment. Mm-hmm. To see everything I had walked through in the last year. And he said, John, we'll deal with that, but it's not today. Mm. You know, I think people want this rapid transformation and I think some people get it. Mm. But for most of us, it's walking, it's taking up your cross daily and follow me. Mm. Die to self, take up your cross and follow me. And for me, dying to myself today is whatever, my sexuality, cigarettes, although that's not an issue anymore, you know, but whatever it is, and then take up your cross and follow him. And I think if the church could understand that at the end of the day, the sin of homosexuality, the sin of murder, the sin of lying, cheating, stealing, all of these things have a path to redemption and it's die to yourself, take up your cross and follow him. When it comes to LGBTQ issues, we too often forget that we're talking about real people. We can put our collective heads in the sand all we want, but our kids certainly aren't. It's everywhere. And we need to ask ourselves this question. Are we really prepared to let another go through what John did without being there for them as a church? If we are, shame on us. John's story is both unique and very, very common. It's common for many young people struggling with sexual identity issues, but even more fundamentally, it's an issue that every person on the planet faces. Are we going to let the brokenness of the world and self-will define who we are and what we are about, or are we going to let our creator show us, even in our brokenness, what we can be? Are we going to look down our noses at those people, or are we going to see that that one sin is just as bad as another? You see, we all have dents of disobedience. I've shared this on college campuses, at churches, youth groups. It's an illustration that I believe helps us to understand it. Several years ago, I was making a comment to my wife about a friend of hers who struggled with an eating disorder. I said, I don't get it. It's just food. She replied, well, she doesn't get your sins. They make no sense to her either. That made me really wonder, why do certain people struggle with specific sins while others don't seem to struggle with it at all? I mean, why are some people alcoholics while others are not? Why do some people steal and others do not? Why do some people have an attraction to children? Why do some people go from affair to affair? Why, why, Why do others lie all the time? You know, I was meditating on this when God brought James chapter one, verse 13 through 15 to my mind. Allow me to read it. 
And remember, when you are being tempted, do not say God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. And then the Lord brought Romans chapter five, verse 12 into my mind. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Now, taking those two verses may not mean a whole lot to you. And you're probably wondering why are those verses important? And I was wondering the same thing until this image flashed in my mind. It was a car transport semi truck. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those on the interstate or expressway where you've got this semi truck and you've got on the back trailer, all of these different cars. And as I'm seeing this, I am watching the driver of the truck and he was told that he could drive anywhere except one place. There was this road that led up a steep hill and it had a do not enter death ahead sign on the gate. And this guy drove around. He was content for a while. But one day he's driving by the gate and he sees another guy closing the gate. He rolls down his window and says to him, hey, how did you get to drive there? It's, it's the one road I've never taken. It says that there is death ahead. The other guy said, you're, you're not going to die. It's really incredible up there. You have views like you wouldn't believe, but you have to drive your truck, though it's, it's hard, but you can do it. I did it. It's a steep hill. You've got to go hold the gas and keep going until you reach the top, and then you don't need to worry about a thing. So this guy thinks for a moment, and he thinks to himself, well, he did it. So he gets out of the truck, opens the gate, and then gets back into the truck and hits the accelerator in order to get the truck up the mountain. It's really a steep mountain, but he keeps pushing up this, this steep hill and gets to the top ready to, to see this view, but doesn't realize that there's actually no road on the other side once he gets to the top. In fact, it was a cliff and he drives right off of it. And as his truck is going over the edge, the various vehicles on the back of the transport fly out. Some fall on their side, others flip over and fall on the roof. Still others land upright but are broken underneath. I mean, damage is done to all of the cars in one way, shape, or another. They're all damaged. Some are damaged similarly, while others are damaged very differently. Now, let me explain this illustration. The driver of the truck was Adam. Remember that passage? When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. When he fell, we fell in him, and then we were all dented differently. But we were dented. It's a mark of the fall. Theologians actually call this original sin. Every one of us was dented with a disposition to disobedience. For some, it's lying. Others, it's drunkenness. Others, drug addiction. Some lying. Others, stealing. Others, same-sex desires. Others desire for multiple partners and affairs. Others gossip. Still others have an attraction to children. Others body dysmorphia. And some others bestiality. I mean, we could go on and on and on to list all of the different sins and that, that really plague our fallen nature. We all, every single one of us, have perverse, distorted desires. The only question is, which of our desires is distorted? And we know that. In our heart, which one? And it's different for each one of us. We all have these sinful desires and we're condemned for them. But only God can set us free. God saw us in our sin, sent Jesus to identify with us, take our sins upon himself, and then give his life in our stead. He became sin for us, but he didn't have any of his own sin. He died our death. But because he didn't have any of his own sin, Death couldn't hold him, and he rose from the dead and offers us to receive the same resurrection life by faith. But we have to abandon our sins and turn to him in repentance and faith, and he forgives us of our sins, transforms us into new cre creatures, and gives us the power and guidance to live for him. That's what happened to me. I was transformed. I had my own sins that I was condemned for, and so do you. And that's what happened to John. And that's what can happen to you. Not that we're all condemned. We are. The Bible's very clear. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we can all be transformed because of what Jesus did on the cross for each one of us. Next week, we're going to continue this conversation with John. How do we take what he saw and experienced and live like Christ in a world that doesn't hold to an orthodox, biblical view of human sexuality? What do we do about our kids in school and entertainment that seems to be so pervasive it's everywhere, shaping how people think? How do we love our neighbor? These are very important issues. And I'm grateful for my friendship with John and his in-your-face challenge to the church to be a church to a world that needs it. If this episode has been a blessing to you, would you please share it with a friend? Leave us a five-star review, hopefully five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us to minister to more people. And be sure to check out our videos on YouTube and subscribe there. Then you can actually watch us do these conversations. And I want to thank our Apollos Water team for all that they do. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the road.